Right, welcome everybody and good afternoon. This is our last uh, meeting of the seminar for this term. And I'm uh, delighted to introduce our speaker today, Professor Abi Schleim. I don't think uh, Professor Schleim needs much introduction, not necessarily, in, uh, surely not in Oxford, uh, but just, uh, just a few words to contextualize our talk today maybe. Uh, professor Schleim is an emeritus fellow at St. Anthony's and he is a former professor of international relations here at the at DPIR. He was elected fellow of the British Academy uh, almost 11 years ago. He has written extensively on the Arab-Israeli conflict and his research has shed light on, new light I would say, on the history of Israel and the Middle East at large to a degree that his work with others is now considered in hindsight or in retrospective to be ushering in a new era in the study of the region, no less than that. Per today's talk, I, just, I will just mention two of his uh, many uh, books, or many works. In uh, 1998, he published uh, Collusion Across the Jordan, King Abdullah, the Zionist Movement, and the Partition of Palestine. And uh, less than 10 years after that, he published uh, the biography of uh, King Hossein, Lion of Jordan, the life of King Hossein in War and Peace. And in uh, today's talk, Professor Schlein will offer us a consideration of a Jordanian perspective of Israel in the context of the Israel Studies Seminar. Professor Schleim, thank you for coming. Thank you, Yaakov, for your kind introduction. It's a pleasure for me to be here with you and to contribute to the Israel Studies Seminar. Uh, my topic is Jordanian perspectives on Israel. And as you have just heard, I've written two books on Jordanian-Israeli relations. The first one was about King Abdallah, collusion across the Jordan, and the second one was the biography of King Hussein, his grandson, which in a sense is collusion mark two. So it's continuation of this story of very close Hashemite Zionist um, relations. So what I thought I'll do today is not give an academic paper, but give a very informal talk and range over a hundred years of Hashemite, Zionist, Israeli uh, relations. And also, if I may, give a personal perspective on Jordanian perspectives on Israel, because I've been involved in this field for a long time. I'm not a stranger to controversies. I've generated a lot of controversies, and I'd like to talk not just about Jordanian uh, uh, perspectives on Israel, but also the historiography of the subject and the controversies that I've been uh, involved in. And I'd like to um, begin by setting out some sort of a framework for understanding Hashemite uh, Zionist Israeli relations. And two factors seem to me to be particularly important uh, in constituting the framework, the context. The first one is the Hashemite tradition. The Hashemites were a dynasty headed by Hussein the Sharif of Mecca. Um, and there have been relations uh, with the Zionists and Israel over the last century. And the head of this dynasty, Hussein the Sharif of Mecca, who briefly became, towards the end of the, at the end of the Second World War, the First World War, he briefly became the king of the Hijaz. Uh, he had a very... Um, um, positive attitude towards Jews and there was never, I did, didn't detect any, any trace of anti-Semitism uh, in him or his, all his descendants. This is in marked contrast to the visceral anti-Semitism of the Saudi dynasty and other Arab um, uh, leaders. And uh, Hussein the Sharif of Mecca regarded the Jews as the people of the book 
and he educated his four children in that tradition of respect for the Jews and tolerance towards the Jews. But he couldn't accept the Balfour Declaration of 1917. And the British offered him um, a defense pact if he would endorse the Balfour Declaration, and he refused. He said he's perfectly happy for Jews to come to Palestine and to live happily under his rule and he will protect them. But he's not prepared, he's, he can't accept the Jews forcing their way in through the window. So he took a principal stand against the Balfour Declaration and the British then abandoned him to the tender mercies of his great rival uh, Ibn Saud who overran his kingdom of the Hijaz. And the other um, important factor to bear in mind in all this is the colonial factor. The role that Britain played in the politics of uh, the region. In a sense, Britain helped to create both of um, these, these countries, Transjordan and later Israel. Uh, this, this process started with the Balfour Declaration of 1917, which Britain wrote into the mandate of the League of Nations in 1920. So Britain was now obliged to help the Zionists create a national home for the Jews in Palestine. But Britain did not fulfill, did not honor the second part of the promise, which is to protect the civil and religious rights of what were described as the non-Jewish um, communities. So Britain, with the Balfour Declaration, started the process of the gradual um, uh, Zionist takeover of most of the country. And in 1921, Winston Churchill, the colonial secretary, created the Emir Emirate of Transjordan. And as he later boasted, he created the Emirate of uh, uh, Transjordan by the stroke of his pen one sunny uh, afternoon and still had time to paint the, some watercolors of Jerusalem. So um, Jordan was an artificial creation. It was a product, a progeny of the British Empire created to suit British imperial interests, as was the Zionist movement. And in Palestine, the Zionists were the junior partners of the British um, Empire. So from the beginning, both Transjordan and the Zionist movement were the clients of the British Empire. And both were somewhat uneasy in the Arab environment. Um, King Abdallah lacked legitimacy in the Arab world, and the Zionists, of course, were in conflict with the environment from the beginning. There was one other factor, and uh, that is that the two movements, the two sides, had a common enemy, uh, Palestinian, the Palestinian National Movement. Maybe an enemy is too strong a word, uh, but certainly an opponent and a rival. For King Abdallah, the Palestinian National Movement was a major rival in contention for possession of Palestine. And for the Zionists, the principal enemy were the local um, Palestinians. So um, having a common enemy or opponent or rival um, gave a base, provided a basis collab for collaboration between the two sides. And there were some periods um, during the reign of uh, King Hussein when I would argue there was active collaboration between the two sides in suppressing Palestinian nationalism. King Abdallah was an extremely ambitious ruler and his greatest ambition was um, greater 
Syria, because he was given by the British a backwater, Transjordan, um, and his aim was to make himself the king of Greater Syria, to bring under his rule Syria, Lebanon and Palestine. He was described by a British official as a falcon trapped in a canary's cage. He was a falcon, but there he was, trapped by the British in this small cage of Transjordan, and he wanted to expand in all directions, but he was a client of the British, and he couldn't do anything without the uh, agreement. From the beginning of his rule, he tried to cultivate friendly relations with his uh, neighbours to the west. He had a high opinion of the Jews, um, of the um, knowledge, of the um, capacity for developing um, country lands, for the technology, uh, for the know-how, and for the international influence. So. All along, he tried to get along. He tried to get on well with them, and he cooperated with them. And there were many friendly meetings between the two uh, sides. He also leased to the Jewish agency the lands that he owned on the east bank of the River Jordan, private lands. That, and the Jewish agency, throughout the nineteen. Um, throughout much of the interwar period, paid him £500 a year for the option to exercise this lease. It never exercised the lease, but it continued to pay him um, for the option. And I wouldn't call this a bribe, but there were payments that were made to him from time to time, apart from uh, the payment for the option on the lease. So money changed hands in this relationship. It wasn't just a dialogue. Uh, this friendly relationship continued with many ups and downs until the end of the Second World War. And after the war, the uh, struggle for Palestine entered its more, most critical phase. After the Second World War, the British, the, the Israelis, the Zionists, looked as hard as they could for one Arab ruler who would agree to the partition of Palestine. And there was only, the Palestinians of course rejected partition outright, and there was only one Arab ruler who was prepared to consider the partition of Palestine with the Zionists, and that was Abdallah, and that was the basis for the dialogue um, across the battle lines in the aftermath of 1946, uh, in 1945. Now, this brings me to 1947, and here uh, I will refer to my book, Collusion Across the Jordan, King Abdallah, the Zionist Movement, and the Partition of Palestine, which deals in detail with this, the period from 1947 until the assassination of Abdallah by, an Arab, by a Palestinian nationalist in 1951. And the usual lineup in most of the literature on the Arab Israeli conflict uh, during this period, during the first half of the 20th century, the usual lineup is that. Uh, Israel on one side, the Palestinians, all the Arabs, and all the Arab nationalists on the other side. My interpretation of this period is that the real lineup below the surface was Hashemites and Zionists on one side against Palestinian and Arab nationalists on the other side. And in the book, I put forward two theses. The central thesis is that in 1947, um, the, the Zionist agency, through Golda Meir, 
and King Abdallah had reached a tacit agreement to divide up Palestine between themselves at the expense of the Palestinians. Um, the spirit of this understanding was that there would be partition of Palestine by peaceful means and that the Jews would create their state, Abdallah would take over the Arab part of Palestine and after the dust had settled they would uh, sign a peace treaty and have normal relations. That was the understanding. Uh, the uh, Zionists tried a few times to persuade Abdallah to write this down, this agreement, and he declined. And he said to them, uh, trust is crucial. If there is trust, there is no need for a text, for a written agreement. And if there is no trust, a written agreement isn't going to help. The subsidiary thesis, no, sorry, just to continue, this tacit agreement laid the foundations for limited clashes during the 48 war and to continuing collaboration in the aftermath of, uh, of the war. The, the secondary subsidiary thesis is that Britain knew and approved of the collusion between um, the two sides. So Britain was, although the mandate was coming to its inglorious end, Britain was still very influential in regional uh, politics. Um, now, as you know, there was a great debate between the old historians and the new Israeli historians or revisionist Israeli historians, of whom I am one. The other two were Ilan Pape and Benny Morris. Uh, Benny Morris has veered to the extreme right, and uh, he's changed his views very radically, so there are only two new historians left. That's Ilan Pape and um, myself. And there are many bones of contention in the debate between the old historians and the new historians. But the one that is relevant here is what was Britain's policy uh, in the twilight of the mandate over Palestine. The old historians say Britain's aim was to prevent the birth of a Jewish state, which was envisaged in the UN partition resolution. We say, no, Britain accepted a Jewish state. Its aim was to abort the birth of a Palestinian state, and it achieved that aim in co cooperation with uh, Abdallah. And the pioneer here was Ilan Pape, who, um, pub who wrote a thesis, Field thesis. He was a student at the Middle East Center. He wrote a Field thesis on Britain and the Arab-Israeli conflict, um, 1948 to 1951. I was his external examiner. I was at Reading at the time. And all, I learned much more from him than he ever, he ever learned from me. And um, all the ideas of the new history are in that thesis in one form or another. But the most radical, most arresting thesis was that Britain's aim um, in 1947-48 was to help Abdallah uh, annex the Arab part of Palestine and do away with the Palestinian state. In British eyes, a Palestinian state was a syno synonymous with a Mufti state. The Mufti was a renegade who had thrown his, his lot with Hitler. So hostility to the Mufti and to a Palestinian state was a constant factor in British policy throughout this uh, period. Uh, Britain gave Abdallah a nod and a wink that once the mandate expired, 
to send his army into Palestine, but only into the parts allocated to the Palestinian state by the UN uh, resolution. But Abdallah was warned not to tangle with the Jews and not to invade any area that was allocated to the Jews. Um, when it came to the crunch, at the end of the mandate, Ab uh, Golda Meir had a second meeting with Abdallah on the 11th of May 1948, four days before the expiry of the mandate. And this time Abdallah said, he didn't deny that there had been an agreement and an understanding. He said he was no longer a free man. He was one of five. There were Arab countries prepared to invade Palestine uh, and he couldn't stand back because he would be denounced as a traitor. So he didn't completely betray the understanding and he didn't fulfill the spirit of the original agreement. It was, he was somewhere in between. And during the war, he did his best to avoid a head-on clash between the two sides. And for the most part, with very minor exceptions, the Arab Legion respected the, the, border, the borders of the Jewish state. Most of the clashes between the Haganah, the, the Israeli army, and the Arab Legion were in and around Jerusalem, on which there hadn't been an agreement. Um, most people thought that my book, or most Jordanians thought that my book was an attack on uh, King Abdallah. In fact, I tried to explain what happened in this very complicated uh, year, 1948. And um, he comes out from my research as the only Arab leader who had a realistic assessment of the military balance of power, who knew that the Arabs had no chance of defeating the Zionists on the battlefields, and that Britain and America and the international community wouldn't allow a defeat of, um, of, of the new state of Israel. So he tried to find a way around it to avoid a head-on clash. Um, the publication of my book in 1988 caused a panic in the royal court in Jordan, in Amman. Prince Hassan, who was then crowned prince, read the book and he panicked because he, he saw my name, it's a Jewish name, and he thought it was part of a right-wing Zionist, Zionist plot to, prepare, to delegitimize the Hashemites and to prepare the ground for Israel, so for Jordan is Palestine. Um, and the book was banned in Jordan then, and it is still banned in Jordan uh, today. Um, the book was also criticized by a number of Israeli historians, uh, most prominently by Avraham Sela. The basic argument was that there was no collusion across the Jordan, that there was a UN partition resolution, the Jews accepted it, the Palestinians and all the Arabs rejected it. So it's the Palestinians who had the chance of a state who, who blew it and went to war to nullify uh, partition. So Israel is not to be blamed for um, depriving them of a, a state. Th that's the main argument against me. And um, I replied to my Israeli critics in an article in 1995 um, called The Debate About 1948. Um, it, it was published in the International Journal of Middle Eastern Studies, and I deal with all the main bones of contention between the old and the new historians, and particularly um, in the section about Arab war aims, in which I, I discuss all this and reply to my Israeli critics. This debate isn't over. A recent PhD uh, student at the Middle East Center, Graham Jevon, wrote a book, a thesis and then a book, on 
um, Britain, the Arab Legion, uh, and Jordan, in which he has a chapter dealing with the collusion thesis of, uh, in 1948. So the debate continues. Uh, I now want to come to the end of um, the 1948 war and to address another issue, contentious issue between the old and the new historians. And the question is, uh, why uh, was there no political settlement for three decades after the guns fell silent? And the old historians answer to this question in two words is Arab intransigence. And my own opinion is that the Arabs were not intransigent, the Arab rulers were not intransigent, they were pragmatic. Every Arab ruler, um, King Farouk of um, Egypt, King Abdallah of Jordan, and Hosni Zain, the ruler of Syria, they were all ready to negotiate with Israel. Each ruler had his terms, but Israel was intransigent in these um, negotiations. Uh, and after the end of the war, the, uh, the dialogue across the battle lines resumed. There were many, many meetings between King Abdallah and various Israeli leaders. They made steady progress. They even had a draft peace treaty, which was initialed, but never signed. And uh, Abdallah, literally, until his dying day, continued this uh, dialogue. So you, can, you cannot say that he was intransigent. And one of the people, Israelis I interviewed was Moshe Sasson, um, whose father was Eliyahu Sasson, who started and conducted the dialogue with Abdallah over many years. But when he was appointed um, uh, minister to Turkey, Moshe Sharet, the foreign minister, appointed his son, who was a young diplomat, Moshe Sasson, uh, to, to continue the dialogue because he knew how important the personal contact was for Arab leaders. And uh, Moshe Sasson told me that at his first meeting with Abdallah, he was a very young man, he said to him, uh, uh, Your Majesty, I want to ask you a question which may be out of place. And Abdallah put his hand on his, and he said to him, Ask my son, ask. And he said to him, Why do you want to make peace with us? And Abdallah said, It's not because I have become a Zionist, but because if we don't make peace, there would be another war, and another war, and another war, and another war. He repeated it four times. And we will lose. That's why I want to make um, peace with you. Um, I now want to move on to the second part of this history to the reign of King Hussein, which began in 1953. So I wrote a biography of King Hussein, but my main interest is the Arab-Israeli conflict. That's how I ended up writing this um, biography. And what I wanted to dispel in the Iron Wall and in the biography of King Hussein was the myth of Arab intransigence. And Hussein was a very good candidate in order to help me to provide ammunition for uh, dispelling this myth of Arab intransigence. King Hussein essentially was a peacemaker. He spent most of his career trying to um, uh, find a way to live, to coexist peacefully with Israel. In um, the sources for, um, so, sorry, I'll go back a, uh, a minute. The book is a comprehensive biography of King Hussein, political biography, 
but my real interest and the only original contribution is about King Hussein's relations and secret meetings with Israeli officials from 1963 until the peace treaty was signed in 1994. As every student of the Arab-Israeli conflict knows, there is a huge asymmetry of sources between the Israeli sources that are available and uh, the Arab sources. The Israeli sources are much, much um, greater and Israel has a 30-year rule for reviewing and declassifying official documents and these are the sources that I used in all my books. Um, but the fact that there is an asymmetry of sources doesn't mean we can't write about the Arab-Israeli conflict. We have to write on the basis of the sources that are available and as I have always said to PhD students of mine who reached a dead end in their research, uh, don't give up. It's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. So that was my guiding light. And uh, there is no archive at all in Jordan. Arab countries all have a national archive where they keep their records. In Jordan, there isn't even a national archive. Only a royal court has its own documents. Uh, um, so I conducted about 80 interviews with Jordanian officials, and recently I deposited my papers in the Middle East Center archive, including a whole pile of the transcripts of these 80 or so interviews uh, and letters and so on. But I did have a really good source for this book, and that is the Charles file. The Israeli official who started and conducted the secret negotiations with King Hussein was Dr. Yaakov Herzog, who was the son of the chief rabbi of Ireland, a very, very learned man, a very serious diplomat. He started the secret meetings with King Hussein in London, and he continued them until Golda Meir became prime minister, and she sidelined him. He was too moderate for her. Um, and these documents are still classified in the Israeli State Archive, although more than 30 years have gone by. But uh, I was lucky enough to meet Shira Herzog, the daughter of Yaakov Herzog, and she photocopied for me the whole of the Charles file. Uh, Charles was the code that the Israelis had for Hussein. They never wrote his name down in any of the communications, hence the name, Charles. the Charles file. And um, all the talks were in English, and um, uh, Herzog uh, wrote very detailed reports on every meeting, uh, sometimes five, sometimes ten, sometimes fifteen pages. And this was the main source that I used in reconstructing all the secret meetings between King Hussein and the Israelis. I'm going to skip... No, sorry... Um, I, um, I interviewed King Hussein in 1996 in his house in Ascot. I recorded the interview. It lasted two hours. And in it, uh, we covered the whole of his reign on the theme of relations with Israel. And after he died, I published an edited version of this interview in the New York Review of Books under the heading His Royal Shyness, King Hussein and Israel. Um, and the whole interview was about his relations uh, with Israel. And the first question I asked him was, why did he initiate the secret meetings with the Israelis in 1963? And his reply was roughly as follows. Um, the Jews were in armies. We didn't want them here. History put them here. And I, as a person 
in a position of um, uh, authority felt that I didn't want it second hand. I wanted to meet with the Israelis face to face to see what was the problem, to see what, um, what they were about and to try and figure out a peaceful way out of this conflict. And he said, by chance, I had a friend who looked after my health here. Uh, he was referring to Dr. Emmanuel Herbert, who was a Jew and a Zionist, and he was his personal physician in London. And Hussein said to me, and he offered the possibility uh, of a meeting, and I said, fine, and that's how it started. And all the meetings took place in the, ho the home of Dr. Herbert in St. John's Wood. Um, and Uh, one point that I want to make about King Hussein is that um, he had a very sensitive understanding and sympathy for Jewish suffering. Um, unlike a lot of Arab rulers, um, he knew about Jewish suffering, he knew about the Holocaust, he took that into account in all his dealings with Israelis and his son, the present king, some of his generals, they all said to me, the king was an educator, his majesty was an educator. And he always used to tell us, when you deal with the Jews, bear in mind that they had suffered a lot. Bear in mind that they, un that they went through the Holocaust. And this, they are bound to be obsessed with security. So when you deal with them, take that into account. So that was his approach uh, in dealing with the Israelis. The one um, departure from this peaceful dialogue was the June 1967 war. Uh, I'm not going to go into uh, details about why it happened but joining the Arabs, joining uh, Egypt in the attack, not the attack, joining the Arabs in the war against Israel was the mistake of his life, and he paid the price for that mistake. He lost um, the West Bank and Jerusalem, the jewel in the crown. And the dialogue continued after the June 1967 war. It was a very intensive dialogue, uh, very frequent meetings with an ever-growing range of Israeli leaders, but nothing happened. Nothing happened. The Israelis were stringing Hussein along. Another meeting and another meeting and another meeting. And from day one, he offered them total peace for total withdrawal and they wouldn't agree to it. And they kept coming up with various offers, like the Alon plan, that he will get back 60% or 70% of the West Bank, but not Jerusalem. And it was all unacceptable. So nothing happened in these meetings. And the question is, why, did, uh, why didn't Hussein call it a day? Why did he continue? And the answer to that is that he was afraid that if he fell out with the Israelis, they will topple him and they will capture the east bank of the Jordan as well, or more likely, they will topple the monarchy and enable the PLO to take over the east bank of Jordan and turn the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan into the, 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 uh, the, the, the Palestine uh, Republic. So it was fear. It was because in order to defend his kingdom, that he continued um, the dialogue. I have to skip a lot, um, and um, 
I would like to come to another, another landmark in 1988 when King Hussein um, broke off the legal and administrative links between Jordan and um, the West Bank. Um, one of his advisors told me that reading Collusion Across the Jordan, which came out in May 1988, influenced his decision at the end of July to um, um, cut his losses on the West Bank. So, so I asked him politely whether my book had any influence on him, and he said, yes, you had the right reading, but he didn't elaborate. So I can only, I can only guess that he read the book, and he realized that his granddad had tried his utmost and couldn't reach an overall agreement with the Israelis. He had been trying uh, for 20 years, and he didn't get anywhere with the Israelis, so he decided to, cu uh, to cut the links and to say to the Palestinian, to the PLO, I've tried and failed, you take over, you represent the Palestinians, see if you'd do any better, and they haven't done any better. Um, the big change in Jordanian-Israeli relations came after the election of Yitzhak Rabin in 1992, and um, Hussein didn't trust Paris because Paris was a politician. Hussein trusted Rabin because Rabin was a military man. A word was a word. Uh, and because they often put themselves in each other's shoes. And they form a really um, close working uh, relationship. And Rabin sidelined uh, Shimon Peres, who was the foreign minister, and he himself and his team conducted the negotiations with Jordan that led to um, the peace treaty. And this relationship with Rabin was extremely helpful to King Hussein. Like all Arab rulers and like the Shah, he was very impressed with the influence that Israel and the Jews and Israel's friends in Washington had over American foreign policy. And these, Rabin and his team helped Hussein with the American, with the Clinton administration. They helped, they persuaded Clinton to write off the national debt of Jordan uh, in the lead up to the peace treaty. The, the negotiations were concluded uh, with, um, and I asked King Hussein, and they led to a peace treaty. I asked King Hussein, was he happy with the peace treaty? And he said, yes, he was. That um, he and Rabin had uh, an understanding, reached an understanding on all the important issues, and it was a, a balanced, that was the word he used, it was a balanced treaty which served the interests of um, both sides. So for Hussein, the peace treaty with Israel was mission accomplished. And things went well until the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. King Hussein went to the funeral in Jerusalem, and he made a funeral oration, uh, which was very moving. And after the funeral, he uh, went back to the King David Hotel and he stood on the terrace, looking at the magnificent um, uh, landscape. And a woman journalist, an Arab journalist, who was quite friendly with him, went up to him and he was crying and he was smoking very nervously. And she said to him, um, you know, what's the matter? And he said, uh, I've come here to bury a friend and I have a feeling that today we have buried the peace. And these were prophetic words. Um, I've exhausted my 40 minutes. Yeah. I can stop here. No, please go on. Please go. May I? Yes. Okay. Well, I'll try to be uh, brief. Um, 
Netanyahu um, won the election against Paris in 1996, and he had his first term as prime minister from 96 to 1999. Netanyahu never liked the Oslo Treaty, so it isn't surprising that as soon as he got into power, he set about dismantling the Oslo uh, peace agreements. Um, and he succeeded. He completely arrested and froze, and in many ways uh, reversed, the Oslo peace process. That's understandable given his ideology and his political position. What is not so easily understandable is why did he destroy the foundations that his predecessors had built for peace with Jordan? I don't have an answer to that. And it's a question that the king puzzled over and he didn't have an answer. And when I interviewed him in December 1996 in Ascot, uh, when we got towards the end of the interview, he started pouring his heart to me about Netanyahu. And he said to me, you know, this man is ruining everything that I've worked for all my life and that Rabin worked for. We did it not for our sake, we did it for the sake of our two people. And this man is ruining everything. I don't know what to do. Do you have any advice for me? And I didn't have any uh, advice for him. But worse was to come in 1997 the Mashal affair, when the Mossad made an attempt, abortive attempt, to assassinate Khaled Mashal, the middle-level Hamas official who was a Jordanian citizen in Amman. And the background was that since the peace treaty, there was very close strategic and intelligence cooperation between the two sides and the king represented Jordan in these regular meetings of security cooperation with the Israelis. And in 1997, the king said, I have a very important proposal for you from Hamas. Hamas proposed a long-term ceasefire. A long-term ceasefire. And I put all my weight behind this proposal. It's a serious proposal. And I want you to take this proposal and um, give it to the Prime Minister, to Netanyahu, without any delay. And two days later, the Mossad agents tried to assassinate Khaled Mashal. And this was like spitting in the face of the king. And um, his reading, his interpretation of this, and I know this from Ali Shukri, who was his private secretary, uh, and I became, I interviewed him about six, 16 times, and I got a lot of, of the information from him. And he said, the king interpreted that the uh, assassination attempt as a message from Netanyahu that he doesn't want to resolve the conflict, he doesn't want a ceasefire, and he's not prepared to confine the conflict with Hamas to Israel and the occupied territories, he wants to extend it to Jordan. And he suspected that this was part of a plot to topple the monarchy and uh, implement the right-wing agenda, the Jordan is Palestine, to topple the monarchy so that the PLO could take over um, uh, the, the, the East Bank. Um, so, uh, Hussein called um, Clinton. Mashal was in hospital, he was dying. Hussein said to Clinton, 
this is what has happened. If Mashal dies, I'm going to convene a press conference and I'm going to renounce the peace treaty. And Clinton said to him, this man is impossible, but let me have a try. I'll speak to him. And Clinton spoke to Netanyahu and persuaded him to send a team, a medical team, with the antidote to the poison, and Mashal uh, survived. But that was the end of any possibility of friendship or cooperation between the two um, countries. And King Hussein wrote a three-page letter in the aftermath to Netanyahu, and Ali Shukri gave me this letter. He wrote it himself, um, and in it he surveys the relationship, all his efforts, and all, and he blames Netanyahu for sabotaging all his efforts and causing a lot of damage to uh, both countries. So I, I'll stop there and just a few concluding remarks about the Jordanian perspectives on Israel. The hallmarks of the Jordanian approach to Israel is pragmatism, moderation, and a search for peaceful coexistence. The Israeli response, I would um, summarize as intransigence, diplomatic intransigence, and the arrogance of power. That's why no, um, there was no future uh, after the peace treaty, of a, a real peace, a genuine peace, which is what the king wanted. But I would add one last remark, that not everything is Israel's fault. It's a complicated set of relationships, and the Jordanians, like the Palestinians, had the misfortune of having Israel as their opponent, because as Edward Said said in relation to the Palestinians, Israel is the most morally complex opponent that anyone could have. Thank you.